I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the New Statesman's Hidden Histories podcast and our new series, the Great Forgetting, Women Writers Before Austin. Episode 2, Blue Stocking Culture. In 1783, Elizabeth Montague wrote, In a woman's education, little but outward accomplishments is regarded. Sure, the men are very imprudent to endeavour to make fools of those to whom they trust so much their honour and fortune, but it is in the nature of mankind to hazard their peace to secure power, and they know fools make the best slaves. Elizabeth Montague was one of the leading lights of the Blue Stocking Movement, where educated women gathered to discuss literature. In this week's episode, I'm joined by Sophie Colombo and Elizabeth Edwards to discuss the Blue Stockings. Who were they, and why did they matter? Liz, I'm going to start with you first. Where did Blue Stocking culture come from? Blue Stocking culture is salon culture. It's a culture of exchange and conversation, discussion. It's originally, I guess, a continental model more than a British one. Um, but it also reflects the way in which the 18th century, mid-18th century, is this kind of conversable world, this age of sociability, um, this world of conversation in real life and then also in print. Um, and the boundaries between the two of those, as we might see, are really not as fixed as you might think. So what did, what were the kind of prerequisites to have a salon of your own? Well, A, a big room. Yeah. What? How achievable was this for, for somebody? How How rich did you have to be? You had to be pretty rich. You had to be pretty well off. And Elizabeth Montague, who is kind of called the Queen of the Blues, was seriously wealthy, um, as was Hester Piozzi, not to the same extent, but she held a kind of rival salon elsewhere. Um, but both of these women are, are really very privileged women in the period um, with plenty of money to, to fund all kinds of schemes, to be patrons of other writers. And presumably that one of the reasons that this was so attractive to women was you had a, it was in your own home, it was in your living room, essentially, because I presume that coffee shops of the time, that kind of you know public spaces, you couldn't really hang around in them if you were, certainly not if you were an aristocratic woman. No, they're complete no-go spaces for women in, women in this period. So what do you do? You set up your own space where you can have this kind of conversable world and this life of dialogue and discussion. Um, and it's it's a private space. It's a space that's by in, by invitation only. Um, How often would you have your? Would you have one every day, or is that just that would be madness? That would be... No, I think they're every couple of weeks, something like that. Yeah, is that right? And seasonal as well, because you know yeah. certain seasons, one's out of London. So, so it's one decamps to Bath to take one the waters, decamps, presumably. Um, and then, and the blue stocking ones. What's the kind of gender balance of them? I mean, they did invite men, didn't they? They weren't purely women's societies. Yeah, men are sometimes present, but. I mean, most of the accounts that we kind of look at now, I think really just they emphasise the female collective. There are men there occasionally, but I think they kind of stand out as being unusual because this is really a gathering of women. And Sophie, tell me, who who is your favourite blue stocking? 
Ooh, who's my favourite blue stocking? Um, I think it would probably be Hester Piozzi. Hester Thrale, as she is in the heyday of blue stocking. She's just absolutely fascinating. She's set up as a rival to Elizabeth Montague. Um, and she's uh, very, very vivacious. She attracts the great and the good Samuel Johnson, Edmund Burke, the Burney family, and many, many others to her home. And she, she privileges wit and learning, but she also privileges play, playfulness, in a way that Elizabeth Montague doesn't. Because what you have to understand is every blue stocking hostess has her own particular style. So Elizabeth Montague's is very based around learning, very sort of, um, uh, they discuss... Worthy. Are you going to say it's very worthy? A bit worthy. Is that the one that you get invited worthy. to and you think, oh, it's doing me good, but I'm not going to enjoy it when You've I go? You've got to go. Yeah. You have to know Elizabeth Montague, but it wouldn't be as fun as a Hester Thrill uh, gathering. Then you've got Elizabeth Vesey, who's another one, and she's famous for um, putting her chairs in a very odd way so that you can't get a circle, you can't get anything that resembles formality, and you have to get up and change so that you're sitting with different people. So every, every blue stocking hostess has their own personal style. And Liz, have you got a favourite? Are you going to say Hester Thrail again? I'm going to be going and say Hester Thrail also. Okay, you two, um, when we were planning this podcast out, both of you were just like, oh, Hester Thrail. <laughs> what, 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 is, what is the Hester Thrail love about? She's just brilliant. Um, <laughs> she... Is she a, much of a writer? Because, I mean, I, she's a letter writer, right? But, in this period, no, she's not. I mean, she has these two lives. She has this life as Hester Thrail, which is this salon culture period of her life and then she has a whole new life as Hester Piozzi so after the death of her first husband she marries really quite scandalously uh, an Italian music master but it's in that phase of her life that she becomes the really the, the published writer not really a blue stocking in the same way not if we're thinking about debate and conversation as the kind of hallmark of blue stocking life um, but what she does is she goes off trailblazing all kinds of non-fictional prose forms so she writes a biography of Samuel Johnson she's the first person uh, not quite the first person to write a biography but the first person to write about him and it is seen as a real landmark in the history of biographical writing uh, because she pioneers this kind of this casual form but you know I mean Hester Thrale Piozzi's kind of um, playfulness is what kind of makes her my favourite and the fact that she hasn't really been recognised as a fantastic innovative writer but I think we need to highlight that many many blue stockings were incredibly innovative writers and they all kind of pushed boundaries mm -hmm. and broke taboos in certain ways Elizabeth Montague wrote this fantastically successful essay on the genius of Shakespeare I mean if you want to think about how Shakespeare's reputation got built up as you know to the point where it is today Day, this kind of national treasure, this, you know, sort of talent beyond question. Elizabeth Montague has a massive role in that because Voltaire and other continental writers criticise Shakespeare and say, well, compared to other playwrights, no, you know, he's not what it's about. And Montague's piece really becomes the standard that you refer back to for a long time. Is this the period in which people were bodlerising Shakespeare or does that come later? At this point, are they performing King Lear with a happy ending? Yeah, I think that's earlier 18th century. Name, name Tate? Is it? Yeah, mm. earlier 18th century, that's happening. So I guess his, his reputation went through being sort of slightly like, ooh, a bit, you know. Mm -hmm. And so she is then the one who kind of begins that march of him to being... To a large extent, yes. And she binds Shakespeare up with a sense of national identity. She says he is our national poet. She puts forward that case that there is something 
I think it's peculiarly English, she, she says, not British, about it. About him. Um, but, you know, that for as a stroke of literary criticism, that's really important. You've then got someone like Elizabeth Carter, who's a fantastic classical scholar. Um, she translates Epictetus for the first time. Um, and, you know, she's, she's, she's known for this incredible kind of classical genius, which really I don't think you can highlight enough how difficult that is to achieve for a woman. Well, that's, what I, that's why I was thinking as you were saying that. You know, how did those women get to the stage of... Were they just lucky to have enlightened fathers who pay... Would they, would they have been schooled at home, I presume, in this period? Well, schooled at home in certain accomplishments. They certain, certainly wouldn't have gone to any kind of formal school. But even the accomplishments that they were schooled in... Yes, you, I think to an extent you have to have an indulgent parent or at least a parent who isn't very aware of what you're doing and up to in order to achieve learning. Elizabeth Montague had a very indulgent um, father and I think uncle or maybe just one of them. But anyway, somebody who brought her along to his intellectual Cambridge conversations when she was a child so that she could learn. Elizabeth Carter, I think, was a little bit more self-schooled. I was telling Liz I was absolutely desperate to get this fact in of how Elizabeth Carter used to make time for her learning. Um, She used to stay up all night um, and in order to make sure she didn't fall asleep and she was, you know, sort of doing her classical learning and all this sort of stuff. She used to apparently wrap cold, wet towels around her head and um, fanatically sniff snuff. And she ended up with this... Oh, a chew green tea. Um, And she ended up with this snuff addiction and with headaches (laughs) that came back to plague her all her life. So she made these sacrifices for her late night Just at the point that I was thinking, this sounds like a really brilliant deadline. (laughs) Deadline beating thing. What? Okay, uh, this is a totally different... What is snuff? Is it just tobacco? tobacco? Is it just, yeah, just, just yeah. that you sort of snort it? From, so, you're supposed to put it in that little crook between your thumb and your forefinger and sniff it. But how much? Because you know, there's all this sort of paraphernalia now to a writing life about all kind of all distractions and all you know. And people get obsessed with you know people write standing up. How much of that stuff comes across in writing the 18th century? How much are people writing about writing? That's a really good question, and a lot of books have been written about it. There's a lot of concern about professionalisation of the writer going on in this period. I think there's still a great anxiety about what what you lose reputationally if you admit that you're writing for money. So absolutely nobody, if they can help it, if they have a certain genteel way of life to uphold, absolutely nobody wants to admit that, even though it's often the case. Wouldn't have been for Elizabeth Montague, because she's incredibly wealthy independently, but somebody like a Bernie or even an Elizabeth Carter could really have done with the money, to be honest. But they, but by publishing anonymously, Bernie didn't get paid then, or uh, no, she was paid. She would get a, manu- a payment, down payment for a manuscript when she went to the bookseller. She got practically nothing for her first novel, but then because it sold so well, she got a bit more for a second one. I think it was. £200 and a pair of kid gloves for a second one. Um, and then the third one, she was able to rake in the big bucks and she built a house from the proceeds. And the fourth one, she got a massive advance. So, you know, it's... That is the classic strategy. Fourth one, massive advance, terrible sales. And <laughs> well, then, no, yeah. fifth one, yeah. Got pulp. But what we should say about Elizabeth Montague as well is the reason that she's staying up half the night drinking green tea and wetting her hair really cold to, to make her stay awake, is that she's basically a full-time carer for her father. Um, so she's spending her days looking after someone else and so she has to carve out the time in order to be able to write and think and mm-hmm. learn in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. And she also buys a house with the proceeds of her translation of Epictetus. Mm-hmm. She has a domestic... That's Elizabeth Carter. Duty. Elizabeth Carter, yeah. yeah. She has a domestic duty here. I mean, 
Samuel Johnson famously says of Carter, and this has been oft repeated as, you know, as if it's a good thing, whereas it's actually quite a bad reflection on Johnson, is, well, the thing about my good friend Mrs. Carter is she can bake a pudding as well as she can translate Epictetus, and she can embroider a hanky as well as you can write a poem or something so there's that impetus thanks to sammy to... j thanks sammy j uh, <laughs> so there's that impetus to to have to balance these different roles but i think you still see that now don't you about when you see profiles of... there was that famous um case with an astrophysicist i think or a female scientist who mm-hmm. died recently in the uh, new york times obituary said you know mm-hmm. she was just as happy baking a pie as she was solving Absolutely. equations and you were like that's great but i can't imagine a male obituary if ever said like he was just as brilliant at exactly. embroidering a smock and as he was running the world bank there are really instructive parallels i think you know lots of things you could say about continuity and change between uh, the 18th century and the present when we're talking about learned women um one only has to think about the absolute flack that Mary Beard got and gets for not looking as some male columnists see it a certain way um, when she presents her fantastic TV programmes. Um, you know, to see that there are certain expectations that you'll maintain a dual role that, you know, male academics wouldn't necessarily come under. But that's the kind of, yeah, doing it all, isn't it? Sort of having it all is that you can, you can do a bit of writing as long as you do all the feminine stuff as, as well. Mm-hmm. What about, um, Catherine McCauley? She was a blue stocking as well, wasn't she? Macaulay, yeah. I mean, just to go back to snuff for a moment. There's an amazing <laughs> anytime, <laughs> always. There's an amazing anecdote about her. She's she is. I think she's the second woman ever to be admitted to the British Museum as a reader. And I think for ten year a ten year stretch, she's the only woman reader who who goes there at all. So this is again. It's not it's not exclusively a male space, but by default, it has become a male space because women just don't go there. They don't use it. Uh, and there's an anecdote about a, a fellow reader who rushes off to, to the corner of the room to relieve himself. In the room? In the room, in the corner of the room. Um, he's called them back by his friend who says, quick, quick, come and look at this, come and look at this. Um, so he races back, presumably unbuttoned, and exposes himself to Catherine Macaulay. Upon when he realises what he's done, he kind of profusely apologises. I'm so sorry, madam, I'm sorry. And she says, do you know what? It's okay. There's no gender in here. And then takes some snuff from her hand. <laughs> Mic drop. I've never heard that. That's brilliant. I thought you were going to say she said something like, no worry, there really wasn't much to see anyway. <laughs> but I guess, yeah, I guess the amount of sass that you could deliver in the 18th century was, was relatively limited. But yeah, librarians out there, if you think people have bad library habits, I mean, snuff and exposing yourself. I think this is something, but this is one that's perpetual fascinating things to me about particularly about the 18th century is that you know you have such high-flown poetry about it and you know these novels and they seem very modern but this was a time when it was people were pissing and spitting oh it's dirty yeah all like, like can we just talk a bit about because i mean blue stocking country is, is firmly rooted in london what was the london of the blue stockings like i think it was probably nicer than your average you know you get this exposure to um very wonderful houses comparatively, um, polite spaces, um, grand parks, um, theatre, opera, um, whatever other sort of entertainments. Um, but there would certainly be the dirty side of it. I mean, there's, um, there's an anecdote that, about Piozzi that I don't know if I should let Liz tell about the... Um... Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I'll tell that one. In a moment. <laughs> um, you know, the things... Well, things... Like, unfortunately, our listeners weren't even able to see the gesture that you just made. <laughs> but uh, I think that one is worth hanging on for. 
Um, but I mean, this is a, I mean, this is kind of to do with the, the rise, the industrial revolution, and also the rise of, of mass production and mass consumption. Is this becomes a period, doesn't it, in which people actually begin to buy lot? You know, people have more than one set of clothes. I mean, mm-hmm. this is my theory. Ever before. 1720 or something like that. Everyone must have smelled pretty rancid mm. because even if you were rich, you had, you know, underskirts that you changed and things like that, but you probably only had a couple of sets of, of clothes, didn't you? Well, when you look at somebody like Elizabeth Montague and you look at the por- all of these women, really, if you look at the portraits of them, I mean, they are the height of fashion. Their clothes are stunning. They want for nothing, I guess, in kind of material sense. They look amazing. They are living in the lap of luxury. Elizabeth Montague is kind of fabulously wealthy for the period. Um, so she's one of the lucky ones. And the name blue stockings, there's all kinds of talk about where it came from, about whether or not it was from a man who they said, you know, don't bother getting dressed up, come in your in your blue stockings. So how much, so tell me about like the process of getting dressed as a woman. What do you, you know, when these women were writing, what are they wearing to write? Montague was famous for wearing diamonds. Actually, Fr- Frances Burney writes a really interesting thing about this. Her sort of mentor, a guy called Samuel Crisp, who she calls Daddy, he's... Daddy Crisp. Daddy Crisp. It's unfortunate. <laughs> it is. He's sort of chivying her about her second novel, Cecilia, and he's saying, come on, you know, it's just a novel. Just get on and write it, you know. Why is it taking so long? I want to read it. And she's saying, well, I'm working on a cap, he says, well, you know, what are, what, are, what are caps in comparison? And she says, you know, a cap has to be made and a dinner has to be made unless I am to go capless and dinnerless. So, you know, there's this sense that she has to be mending her clothes and, you know, sort of doing the small minutiae of her, of her li- everyday life, even as she's producing this eagerly anticipated novel. So for somebody like her... Um, without that personal wealth. You know, you not only have to be thinking about what you're wearing, but you have to be constantly repairing and mending it. That's right, because there's a book that came out last year by Catherine Marcel, which is called mm. Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? And it points out that, you know, Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations because he, you know, he lived with his mum, mm-hmm. um, who was who was widowed, and and she put his dinner on, on the table every mm-hmm. night. And, but for, for women writers, even those of them who were of relatively genteel birth, there were lots of competing, you know, Frances Burney being an obvious example, you know, your time was very, very often not your own. But I'm guessing, so you, you would have been wearing stockings... That you probably maybe woolen stockings at this point, like probably yes, caps, hats, ribbons. I mean, it sort of depends when in the 18th century you're talking about because fashion, as I understand it, changes enormously. But in the 1760s, 1770s, there's this rage for unbelievable hairstyles, you know, which could be up to a few feet high. So this is where you get these towers of grey hair coming from, and they're grey because of hair powder, which is very fashionable to wear. You're not supposed to let anyone see the true colour of your hair, um, and there are with kind of, you know, fake flowers, fake butterflies, whatever it might be, these huge arrangements. Boats. 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 Uh, and there's talking about, you know, living in a, in a female body in this time. How many of the writers that we've been talking about had children? That's a good question. Um, so Afra Ben, we, we don't, we don't, we don't know, know of any. Eliza Haywood, we, they might be... a couple. Yeah, some, yeah. we don't know. People like the, the blue stockings, you know, did they... Yeah, um... Bernie has one child kind of late in life, aged mm-hmm. maybe 40 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, Edgeworth never marries. She's, she's another of these figures who's kind of a, an amanuensis to her dad her whole life. Um, Hester Thrale, I guess, is, is an anomaly because, um, she spends her married life with Henry Thrale kind of permanently pregnant. And she says, with, the, with my head in the basin six months of the year because she's terribly, terribly sick. But her story is a very sad one because she loses, she has miscarriages. She has 12 live children, live births, and I think of, of which only four survived to adulthood. 
because there's I, I've and I've tell me if I can't remember I've got a horrible feeling that Samuel Richardson has about five children or his wife has about five children and they're all called Samuel because not, like, none of them <laughs> survive and he just sort of like and which I just think by the time you're on Samuel four <laughs> you sort of think God you know maybe I'm this, maybe the name is cursed maybe I should this is what I should stop with. but I think that's something that I I find it really interesting to try and reconnect with these women's lives mm. you know this was a time when you know there was no birth control well. For some people, there was some, you know, you had sheep gut condoms and things like that, but that was more kind of a brothel thing, maybe for venereal disease. But a lot of these women writers, their lives would have been dictated by motherhood and by caring responsibilities. I think it would actually be fair to say, looking at the majority of successful 18th century female writers, that they don't have children or that they do a lot of their writing before they have a child later in life. There are exceptions. Um, Hester Threlpiotsi is one of them. Charlotte Smith is another one who we haven't spoken about yet. She's a novelist and poet from the 1780s through till the early 19th century, and she has, I think, 13 births, nine of whom grow up to adulthood. And she has to make it part of her authorial identity that she is a dutiful mother and she writes in the service of providing for her children. But now you mention it, but it's it, really not that many. When you think about women in the period, you know, how tough did you have to be even to survive multiple pregnancies and multiple births? You know, if you made it at all, that was probably something of an achievement. Yeah, I just, when I was writing my piece last last year's New Statesman about politics and mm. uh, and you actually say, well, there's not necessarily a problem with being a woman in politics. There's a problem with being a primary parent, which yeah. often means a mother in politics, you know. And the number of, the difference of number of children between the shadow cabinet, between the average number the men had and the women had is really astonishing. The number of, you know, um, Scotland, you know, has got three female leaders, none of whom have, have children. Mm. And I think that's what, you know, Theresa May, the highest woman in the government, doesn't have children. Mm. What what becomes very obvious is that actually for aspirations being a caregiver mm-hmm. is yeah. is really tough because it just it, no, like socialism it takes up too many evenings and then you look at the medieval period and the the women writers that have often survived from then you know, Julian of Norwich people like that were religious women they were you know they were mm-hmm. perpetual virgins they just didn't they they found a space to write by opting out of a family life mm-hmm. and yet for Hester Piozzi Hester Thrale as she was I guess writing, having children is one of the things that starts to create her as a writer because she keeps manuscripts called things like the children's book where she records all their ailments. She's terrified. After she's lost so many, she's terrified any ailment they have. She's terrified this is a sign that she's going to lose yet another child. Um, So it's one of the things, for her at least, that begins her writing life is writing about her children, although it's only when they're a little bit older and when she's married for a second time that she actually becomes... Uh, a published writer. And in the literary kind of discourse around the time about the education of, of women, is there some emphasis on we must educate the mothers because then they'll bring up important people, i.e. Mm. boys? It's really important to Hester Thrale because um, she's one of, again, she's one of the lucky ones. She's unusual in that she does receive a, a class, a sort of classical education. She learns French. I think she, she knows four languages by by the time she's a teenager. Um, and then she put, she pours everything so she tells us, into educating her children in turn. It's a real mission for her. And Sophie, oh, sorry. Sorry, I was just going to say the conduct literature that you mentioned, really, really important here. Um, You know, these books, which do essentially what they say on the can, they're like sort of a cross between etiquette manual and a magazine advice column and a didactic kind of religious treatise, usually written by older men for younger women and advising them on how to behave and how to conduct themselves. And there's this real culture of reflecting on what are women for. And I think you've hit the nail on the head in that... Um, where writers are able to 
justifying to celebrate female education, female learning. It's often in the sense that they are going to be the mothers of the great men of the future. So we need to sort of invest in them for that reason. And I wanted to know, talking about material conditions, was there any kind of equivalent of blue stocking culture of these female literary, you know, clubs for working class or even lower middle class women? I would be inclined to say, well, I would say I haven't heard of any, any sort of labouring class blue stocking club. But it does put me, me in mind of the story of Anne Yearsley, which might be um, briefly illustrative here. Um, Anne Yearsley's this uh, labouring class poet. She's a milkwoman from Clifton near Bristol. And uh, Hannah Moore, who is um, a sort of middle-class genteel writer affiliated with Elizabeth Montague's Blue Stocking Circle, discovers that Yearsley writes these unbelievable poems. And she, she sort of... Um, is amazed at this and she takes Yearsley up and starts to patronise her. She introduces her privately to Elizabeth Montague and she and Montague start to raise subscriptions, which is a kind of 18th century crowdfunding for Yearsley's first book of poetry. You might say kind of isn't that lovely and what a heartwarming story, but unfortunately it goes rather sour because once this book of poems has been published and it's immensely successful, Moore and Montague, the patrons, decide that um, they should have control of Yearsley's earnings rather than her because she's a labouring class woman who isn't going to be trusted to spend them properly. Um, and there's a rift. Eventually, Yearsley gets her earnings, but she's totally cut off from the blue stockings. But even at the height of the friendship and the patronage, Yearsley is not invited to blue stocking gathering. She's not seen as an appropriate person to be there despite her talent. Um, she actually writes the most wonderful passive-aggressive poetry about it, um, addressed to more to Stella on a visit to Mrs Montague, which talks about how unworthy she and Yearsley is to attend these gatherings. Um, so yeah, you know, I think that story can tell us something about how the Blue Stocking Circle, despite such a commendable aim of nurturing talent and women of all stations um, fell rather short in that respect. And is that a, 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 a part of a wider story of middle class and upper class women trying to gain respectability for their own literary pursuits by by emphasising quite how rarefied, how restrained, how, how ladylike they were? Mm. The Blue Stocking Circle is a moment in which, it's an amazing moment really for, for women's history because it's it's a point when women's cultural achievement is celebrated almost perhaps as never before or since. Um, it's a period in which women come to be a kind of index of the nation's civility. And what do you mean by that? I mean, in the sense that who, who praises the blue stockings then? Are there, are there male writers sort of holding them, yeah, them um, up? Round about the mid-century, um, there's this real move to kind of commemorate them, to list them, to, um, to write praise poetry to them and kind of compile these lists of eminent women who kind of glorify the nation in some way, kind of much as um, Montague has done with Shakespeare and said, okay, here's our national bard. They kind of reflect a little bit in that light as well, and they become national treasures. But it's quite problematic, isn't it? Because underlying this celebration, this kind of boasting, oh, France, our women are more intelligent than yours, which is the shape it often takes, there's also a sense of anxiety about what this learning might do to masculinity, to intellectual culture. And, you know, people like, women like Montague, um, who have a very real social power, often have kind of images of transvestism associated with them. You know, she talks in a masculine way, people often say. So there's this notion that, you know, she's she, she is celebrated on the one hand, but on the other hand, there's something that 
you know, these male commentators don't quite like it's about so it. fragile, yeah, and so right. hard won, and it doesn't last. I guess. Well, that's that's the final question, really. Which is, it when blue stocking culture dies out, is it because the founders die out, or is there a, a cultural shift behind it? Really good question. Mm. There's, um, you know, there are certain circles made up of particular people, some of whom we've touched on in this episode who drift apart, who die, who go their separate ways, who have rifts. And by 1825, Thomas Rowlandson is able to publish this magnificent, horrible cartoon called The Breakup of the Blue Stocking Club, which is just a kind of scram of women pulling each other's hair and burning each other with candles and cats flying everywhere. Um, you know, so, so it's, it's partly due to individual personalities and some well-publicised rifts. But I don't know, I suppose there's something around the turn of the 19th century. I think it's, I mean, we'll get to the 1790s in a, another episode, but I think the 1790s changes everything. Um, the political agenda is so different and the, the level of public debate, again, is so, it's so much changed from then, from compared with the, with the mid-century, um, that I guess that the luxury, in a sense, of being able to have these debates about what do women mean and how should we value them or not? Um, has they threatened us? That, that's not the debate to have in after the French Revolution. I was going to say, is it a, a symptom of, of the general anxiety that you see in the kind of work of Sir Evan Burke and people like that about the feeling that, you know, France has overturned everything? You know, France has had this uh, chopping off people's heads left, right and centre. You know, what, where is the enemy that is, uh, that is going to overturn our society, everything that we've hard fought for? Oh my God, is it, is it women? Oh my God, they, they might hear it. It's coming from inside the I house. Think, I think that might be spot on, actually. Um, what you see in the 1790s, which is, um, as Liz said, is you know, a whole other episode, um, is this unsettling of distinctions. And it's partly a result of what happens in France, but just everything starts to become unsettled. And that's productive of a huge amount of um, anxiety and backlash and gender, I think, becomes subjected to that. And suddenly where it was, you know, where one could transgress, one could slip through the cracks earlier in the century, somehow it becomes a lot more shocking to do so in that climate. Well, we'll come back in the next episode to some of the attacks on women writers. But just before you leave us, I'm, I, I'm quite into the idea of you setting us homework every week. <laughs> Is there something that you'd recommend reading from that comes out of that period? If you're interested in finding out about the Blue Stockings, anything by Elizabeth Ager, who's at King's College London. Um, there's also a book called Small Change by Harriet Guest, which is about which has this wonderful section on women as a national treasure with that kind of um, anxiety-creating underbelly also. In terms of primary sources, what do you think? It's really difficult because these are not necessarily women known for novels or poetry, um, Go away and read Epictetus in Elizabeth Carter's <laughs> yeah, translation. I'm going to say probably <laughs> but, not. <laughs> but it's their lives. Uh, it's The way we could read them now is, is in some ways parallel to how they might have been read at the time, which is it's them, it's their lives and their conversation, them... These women as, as figures, that, that's the interesting thing. You don't have any direct access to them, but you can, you can read of them and you can get this kind of partial glimpse of them, which maintains their kind of propriety, but you still get to know... The but is there even a scholarly biography of, of Elizabeth Montague, let alone a kind of popular one? That's an excellent question. I don't... Not for a long time. Just going to say gap in the market, guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, There's a few of Hester Threll Piazzi out there. All, every copy which of which has been like signed by you two. <laughs> love her. Um, well, we'll come back to that. But yeah, for the moment, you, if you say there are, there are more, there's more blue stocking reading out there. But for the moment, thank you very much to Liz and Sophie. Thanks. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You've been listening to the New Statesman's History Podcast, Hidden Histories, presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by India Burke. Our music is Jean-Baptiste Lully's Gavotte, performed by Thrax, and is licensed under Creative Commons. For more information about the writers and works discussed in this programme, visit newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.